Hebrews chapter 6. Once again in verse 4. Brethren, let us hear God's word. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Amen. May the Lord add His precious blessing to His Word to us. Oh, brethren, this is uh, the second time we visit this passage because, uh, as we said in our uh, last study, there is perhaps no passage that comes up more frequently in discussions of perseverance than this one. Saints in all ages wrestle with it because of what it seems to say. And yet we want to be clear in its context what in fact it means. It is therefore vital that we take some time to work through it uh, prayerfully and judiciously. And it is uh, clearly a warning. This is not fiction. Um, There are those that almost preach it as if, well, it's here just to kind of stir you up a little bit, but the Lord's people really don't have to worry about this. And uh, the thing is, brethren, when the Lord puts a warning in His Word, it is to all those who hear it. We need to hear this very wise and this very potent warning from the Word of God. Apostasy is a deliberate and calculated rejection of Jesus Christ as one's righteousness. It is an informed, willful, and intentional departing from Christ and His gospel as the only hope for the pardon of sins. Now, in the context of Hebrews... Those that were deliberating, returning to Judaism, the Jewish convictions and practices to the Old Covenant as the way of relating to and worshiping God, it is a willful rejection of Christ and the knowledge of Him as Lord and Savior and a return to some other righteousness. Now, in this passage, there are six assertions made about those who are addressed. And we want to take careful note of each one. Look at it in its context, and by God's mercy lay hold of what is being said to us here. Now last week, we tried to put this chapter in its context. We looked at several of the warnings that uh, precede it, and we have carefully tried to set before you the fact that over and over and over, the issue underlying these warnings, is unbelief. Unbelief. The heart ultimately reveals whether it believes by the power of the Holy Spirit or in a fleshly sense believes certain biblical truths only to fall away. And we're going to see the difference uh, in those two this evening, God willing. 
So, having laid the, the background for this, when we come then to, to chapter 6, it is with the understanding that the entire book of Hebrews is written to those who are uh, under, under duress and under trial and temptation, uh, being tempted to fall away from Christ as their righteousness and to enter uh, back or to go back to uh, the, uh, the old covenant. So, <clears throat> the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. He has already reproved them for not growing in the faith as they ought. And brethren, that's one of the reasons people go backward. You need to know the truth and you need to believe the truth. He has given them examples of the fact that the old covenant people of God, many of them heard the word of God. They heard clear, uh, uh, clearly from the prophets of the living God. They heard from Moses. They heard God himself at Mount Sinai. And brethren, <clears throat> they heard him and they agreed to it. They said, yes, we'll do this. They weren't standing there scratching their heads and saying, well, we don't understand any of this, but, you know, we'll just try to go along to get along. And they said, no, we hear what, what you've said and we'll do it. There was a clear understanding of what was said before them, but in time, their hearts proved to be filled with unbelief. Why? Because they went away from the revelation of God. They left what they said they believed. And now, using those very examples, he says to these Hebrews, and ultimately we're to learn, all of us are to learn from what's being said here, this isn't only for Jews, but the fact that he's saying to these Hebrews, you're tempted to go back to the old priesthood. We have a better priesthood. You're tempted to go back to the old covenant. We've got a better covenant. You're tempted to go back to Moses. We've got Christ. So, These folks should, by now, have even been teachers of the Word, he says, in chapter 5. But they were still on the bottle. They weren't eating strong meat. And, and brethren, that's a very real reason to be concerned. If you do not know the Word of God, uh, and if you are not hungering after it, thirsting after it, imbibing in it, the day may come that your indifference proves that your heart is full of unbelief and you will go back from the revelation set before you. I trust you see something of the, the temptation and the background here. So, leaving these principles, he's, he goes on to say, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're going to go past these, we're going to go into the deeper meat of the Word and talk about some of these things. He says, but I have another warning for you. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. That's the first thing. That's the first assertion. Being enlightened. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now the word enlightened means to shine. To give light to. To illuminate. It also means to make clear. To cause to understand. <clears throat> Therefore, it can mean either literal light, shining light on something so that we see it, or metaphorically, it means bringing someone to a place of understanding. 
Now the word enlightened is never used in other New Testament passages to mean believed the gospel. Now that's important. He, he isn't saying those who once had believed the gospel or come to faith as such, to saving faith. What it simply means is that they came to understand what was being said to them. And brethren, that is possible. The lost man can understand the principles of the gospel. Whether he savingly believes them is another issue. But he can be enlightened. You can sit and you can train children to say back to you what you say to them in gospel truths. But whether they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have been brought to savingly close with Christ is another matter. And they can say the words back. And they have a comprehension of something of what that means. But it doesn't mean, necessarily, that they've been born of God's Spirit. We tend to think nowadays, if someone just shows some kind of interest in God talk, that they must be Christians. This is terrible delusion. So, as it is used here, enlightened means that there are uh, those who have been clearly instructed in the gospel. And yet they can fall away from that clear understanding. In other words, they are not like the ignorant pagan or infidel. They have been taught and have understood the gospel and are thoroughly conversant with its truths. That is apparent, by the way, the writer to the Hebrews writes his letter. If you'll remember last week we looked at Luke chapter 8, verse 13, and we want to visit that verse Once again, very briefly, remember it says, They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Modern evangelism is built on the idea that if you just get people to say yes, if they quote, make a decision, then they're saved. And since the Bible teaches, quote, once saved, always saved, If they've said yes, they're infallibly Christians. Again, this is deception. It is terrible deception. And we want to be clear, on one hand, while we oppose easy believism, we're not trying to come up with our own version of hard believism. The point is simply to say, That just because someone hears your gospel presentation, hears that wonderful sound of grace, and apparently receives and rejoices in those words, it doesn't mean that the root is within them. This is why our Lord is teaching us this. And brethren, this explains uh, much of the perplexity 
that we see around us and the confusion in modern day, uh, quote, evangelical Christianity. We have churches filled with people that have received the word with joy, but there's no root in them. They have no hunger for the things of Christ. They have no desire to repent of their sins and walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in a holy, sanctified life. They've just nodded their head to what sounded good with joy. They sing Amazing Grace. They're glad to go and do their religious time. They even like to do some religious things. But they fall away. Today there's not much for them to fall away from, I'm sad to say. There's so little gospel in many of these in, in many of these gatherings called churches. There's not much for them to fall away from. But brethren, even when there are the greatest and clearest um, uh, discourses on the gospel of God's saving grace, people can hear it and say this is wonderful and yet not have the root within them. This is what Christ is talking about. They haven't been born of God's Spirit. It says, and in time of temptation fall away. That's the background for what we see here. In Hebrews 6, these people were under uh, trial and tribulation for the sake of Christ. And they were going away from the truth. Or at least there was the temptation. If you read uh, on in the rest of the chapter, it, it says plainly, we're persuaded better things of you. But this was a, a clear uh, danger to those who professed in that day. John chapter 8 gives us another example of what we're talking about, being once enlightened. <clears throat> John chapter 8, verse 30. It says, As he, that's the Lord Jesus, spake these words, many believed on him. Many believed on him. Now, if we stop there, we could simply say, Well, praise the Lord. This is wonderful to see, and it's uh, wonderful to hear, and we're thankful that there are those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. It says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him. So that gives us the context as clearly as it can be said. There are those who attempt to get around the force of this passage because in their idea of belief, if, if we're saved by believing, and by believing alone, then any time the Bible says someone believes, then people have to be saved. Not discerning the fact that there is a difference between a belief that springs forth from the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost and that which issues forth from the flesh. Christ says to those Jews which believed on Him. Well, what does He say to them? He says, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Alright, this is a powerful word. You're my disciples, not simply because you say that you're believing in me. But that you continue in my word. Then you're my disciples. Because the word disciples means learners. That's literally what the word means. Those who go on learning from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Master. Come, learn of me, he said. That's the call to discipleship. Notice, 
verse 31. Excuse me, verse 33. They, who, the Jews, which believed on him, answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be free? Or be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. Now who in the world is he saying this to? Those who are standing there making a profession that he's the Messiah. I know your hearts is what he's saying. Many professed to believe in Him. Many went out at His triumphal entry and strewed the way with their clothing and with branches and said, Yes, glory be, hallelujah, praise to the Son of David. And yet, very shortly thereafter, the city was in an uproar to kill Him. Where were all those, where were all those disciples? Where were all those believers? They're in the same place where a lot of those people that make decisions are. They're outside the pale of saving faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39 says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Alright? Here's a group of people. Now how can you have people drawing back if they haven't committed themselves to something in the first place? Everyone clear on that? When it says we're not of them that draw back, obviously there were those who were in fact drawing back. but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Because there is the believing that falls away and believing to the saving of the soul. The believing to the saving of the soul springs forth from the new birth. And it continues because it issues forth from the new birth. Well, that's the first thing that's said then. They were once enlightened. Men, women, children can quote, be enlightened. They can hear gospel truth. It can be clear to them. They can sit under anointed preaching. Preaching that is attended by the power of the Spirit. And they can hear the clarity of God's Word. And say, sure, yeah, we believe that. But then a time comes when they are proven not to believe unto everlasting life. This is why there is a warning here. Just because you understand doesn't mean that you should be foolish in your confidence before the Lord. 
Is this to make everyone upset? Is this to make us walk around under a cloud? Is this to make us uncomfortable so that we're always in some kind of anxious state? No. It is to cleanse our thinking and press us on to clear and saving faith. At least make our minds more aware of the fact that simply our having said that we believe something doesn't necessarily mean that we savingly believe to life. Well, the second thing is that they tasted of the heavenly gift. We're going to put this together with the third thing and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Because I believe it's pointing to the same thing. They tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, <clears throat> what does tasted mean? Now, we all know what that word means in a general sense. Tasting can mean to eat or drink a small quantity of something. Your wife is in the kitchen. She says, come over here, sweetheart. Would you taste this for me to make sure it's all right? That doesn't mean sit down and eat four bowls of it. A taste is a small amount. However, in the way that it's used in Scripture, it can also mean to experience something to its fullest. Christ, right here in the epistle to the Hebrews, is said to have tasted death for every man. This certainly cannot mean that Jesus, Jesus had a small quantity of death. That's not possible. He tasted it to its fullest, did he not? He experienced it to its fullest. So the word taste has a broad application. It can mean a little taste of something or it can mean a full experience of something. So how, how are we to know what it means here? I've, I've heard preachers, uh, very often I think well-meaning, say, well, it says taste here. And all that means is they just got a little of it, and that's it. And that's, that's what proved that they were not truly the Lord's children. They just got a little bit of that. And that is actually what I believed for a long time, because that's what I've been taught. But the more we look at this, and, and the more we think it through... As in the case of so many controversial passages, the conclusive element for proper interpretation is the context. The key to this difficulty is not to focus on whether the writer is saying that these professors tasted a little or the fullness. The idea here is experience. They experienced the Holy Ghost. I don't think it is in the mind of the writer to, to talk to us about the amount. Perhaps that's included. But the overall point that he's driving at is that they've experienced this. They have experienced the heavenly gift and were made partakers. Of the Holy Ghost. Well, what is the heavenly gift? 
Well, brethren, the word salvation might come to mind. Justification. The Holy Spirit. They are all referred to as the gift of God in Scripture. So which is it? Which one is meant? Again, the context, I think, must be our final witness. I believe that what the writer is pointing us to is that the fact that those being described have experienced the Holy Ghost. Enlightenment is a work of the Holy Spirit. Tasting of the heavenly gift, meaning the work of the Holy Spirit. And made partakers of the Holy Ghost, the agent of those other two items being finally said in the third thing. It is the Holy Spirit. Now, of course that raises some questions in people's minds. How does one experience the Holy Spirit and not be a Christian? Well, brethren, the Scriptures are filled with this. As a matter of fact, just to go back for an obvious Old Testament example, Balaam, the the wicked prophet who was hired by Balak to come and curse Israel, could do nothing every time he opened his mouth except bless Israel. Where did that come from? He prophesied over Israel. Where did that come from? It came from the Holy Spirit who spake through the prophets. There are many other examples. But there are many ways of experiencing the Holy Ghost without being, of necessity, born again. Conviction is one example. John chapter 16, verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said, And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will reprove the world of sin. He will make those within this world know their sinfulness. But a man coming to conviction is not the same thing necessarily as man coming to conversion. You can come under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Almost, Paul, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. What was persuasive about Paul? Well, he himself said he wasn't a good orator. He himself said he wasn't eloquent. What was so persuasive? Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he preached, men heard something. It's not just because men are eloquent or because they can put a nice speech together. It is when anointed by the Spirit of God, they speak and men hear. And they know they're in the power and in the presence of something awesome. Brethren, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he stood and he preached. And brethren, it cut them to the heart and they killed him. All conviction does not lead to conversion. Some of it may lead to your death. Nonetheless, it is genuine tasting of the gift of God. It is experiencing the power of God. 
through the Holy Spirit. There are uh, examples of people being healed in Scripture who apparently do not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4 verse 40 says, Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. But we don't have testimony that all of those people became his devout disciples. Luke chapter 17 is especially poignant in... uh, in light of this, verse 12 of Luke 17 says, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Brethren, he was already cleansed. So the whole here couldn't simply be physical healing. Quite apparently, he recognized what had happened to him and who did this. He returned in faith to give glory to God. The other nine went on their way. But brethren, they tasted of the heavenly gift. Christ was anointed at his baptism with the Holy Spirit without measure. So there are many ways that we can experience the Holy Spirit without of necessity being converted by the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be a partaker then? It says that well, these people are partakers. Well, <clears throat> the word partaker means someone who shares in or participates in something with someone else. It can have a very, uh, a very close application or it can be rather loose. Um, If you turn to Luke chapter 5, turn to Luke chapter 5, let's look at verse 7. Luke chapter 5, verse 7 says, And they beckoned unto their partners. It's the same word in Greek, partakers. They beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. Well, quite obviously, this doesn't mean that in some way, the fishermen in one boat were partaking of the nature of the fishermen in the other boat. It simply means they were engaged in a similar activity. 
They were engaged in something. And brethren, the religious lost can gather together with God's elect. And they are partaking of the same things. They're hearing the word of God. They're hearing praises uh, offered to God. They're hearing the word of God preached. The, the, the Spirit of God attends the meeting of God's people. And one can be a partaker of the Holy Spirit. A partner. A companion. If you want to say it that way. Without necessarily taking part by regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me, let me put a footnote to this. There would be some who would say, well, it seems like you're going to awfully long lengths to try to get around some things that are, seem to be fairly plain. My answer to that is, no, I think most people do not understand the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. Brethren, what are we? The temple of the Holy Ghost. When we meet, brethren, it should be a manifestation of the Spirit's power. And these people were gathering together with the Lord's children. But there was the temptation to fall away. That's why He says to them in here, this is why He commands, forsake not the assembling together. Why? Because it is in the gathering of God's people that the Lord meets with us as He does in no other way. Get on your knees in your closet. Praise the Lord and meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. It fills the heart with joy and I trust with a holy fire. Pray. Pray with your spouse in your home. Pray and rejoice together in the things of Christ. But brethren, if we are the Lord's elect, and if He is pleased to meet with us as He promises, He meets with us in a way when we gather the called out assembly, the ecclesia, in a way that He does no other. Brother, when the Lord really begins to move among His people, people want to be at church. They want to meet with God's people. Because the Spirit is encouraging their hearts. The Spirit is helping them receive the Word. The Spirit is helping the elders administer the Word. The Spirit is moving our hearts to praise. And even though maybe none of us even hit the notes of the song, there's something glorious about it. Because Christ is in it, and His Spirit fills His people. This is a supernatural meeting, or we're wasting our time. It's one of the reasons you hear from me regularly. Pray for the services. Pray for the services. Pray that when we come together, the temple of the Most High is filled with His glory. Now, if we understand that, these things make more sense. We become so individualistic that sometimes we, we miss what's being said. 
they are being addressed and they're being addressed in a day when there were extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit within the congregation. The casting out of devils. The working of miracles. Wonderful gifts from the Spirit were all taking place within those congregations and people were tasting, they were experiencing God's power. And brethren, whether or not we experience the same gifts, we should experience the same presence because it is the same Spirit, the same God. We need to pray that we're not stifling, that we're not grieving the Holy Ghost by our petty fleshly antics but that we are coming humbled and pleading with our God to meet with us. And we might know His power. Brethren, the greatest experiences in my Christian life have been when God in His mercy has come to either smaller or larger groups and began to manifest Himself as His truth was preached and you couldn't keep those people away. You'd have to beg them to come. They wanted to be there. Because the Spirit of God was there ministering in His Word, in song, in prayer, in fellowship. Fellowship is a supernatural thing. If it's real fellowship. So, it is possible to be a partaker, a participant of the Holy Ghost and not be born of God's Spirit. This is not sidestepping the issue, brethren. I think it's defining it exactly the way it ought to be understood. Now, that's my conviction. You must put that to the test. Not only that, it says in verse 5 that they have tasted the good Word of God. You see, all of these things, all of these things are the work of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the good word. You noticed, it didn't say, and a slick preacher really wowed them. It didn't say that. It also doesn't say that a wonderfully well-intentioned, eloquent man really encouraged them. No, it says that they tasted something. They experienced something. And it was the word of God attended by His Spirit that spoke to their hearts. Brethren, lost men experienced that. Remember, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Brethren, I can only imagine that Paul, filled with the Spirit as he was, when he let loose, people heard something. Now they might have gone, he's just a babbler. I hate what he's saying. But why do they say that? Because they're hearing something. There is a power to it and their wicked hearts hate it. That's why they killed Stephen. Brethren, pray when we come together that our prayers would be led by the Spirit. Pray that when we come together our singing might truly honor the Lord that we're not sitting there going, well, you know, I hope the people in front of me or behind me don't think I, I sing too well. Forget that and sing to the Lord. Sing. You're not here to sing to each other. Glorify Him by His Spirit. Does your heart overflow with joy? 
Do you know the taste of Christ? Do you know the glory of having your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? Sing to Him. Now, brethren, when the Spirit's involved in that, people are joyous. And there's something that when people walk in and are there, they come out going, not, oh, necessarily that they were nice people or a good preacher, but the Lord was among them. Amen. This is what we want. This is what we plead for, or we should. So the lost can hear, they can taste, they can experience the good Word of God. Brethren, I've seen people come here, and I've seen over the last 20 years of my life, people come, and you begin to preach and teach the Word, and they know they're hearing something. They know they're hearing something. And they come and they hear and week after week and finally it dawns on them what they're hearing. And then you don't see them anymore. But they knew something was happening. They were experiencing the good Word of God because it's truth. Every syllable of it. It's holy truth. It's food for the soul. If you're If you're alive, And it can sound very sweet to the ears of lost men until they finally get a hold of what it ultimately means. Oh, I'll have to be different. I I may have to change. No, I love my idols. I'll stay with them. Oh, wait a minute. They're talking about predestination. Oh, I don't like that. Brother, they taste the good word of God. And they taste the powers of the world to come. Brethren, this is, this is the one that grips my soul every time that I read it. Every time that I come to preach of this. They taste the powers of the world to come. This is ultimately what all of this means. Oh, that God would come and help us to grasp this. This is so important, brethren. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He's living, whatever men may say. How do you know He's living? Because the world to come, by the power of the Holy Ghost, has entered into your soul. Brethren, what's going to be revealed when the Lord comes back? He's not going to be any different than He is right now. We're going to see Him in His glory. We're going to see Him in His glory. He's going to roll back the veil and usher in eternity, the world to come. We're in the bad world right now. We're in the one that's dying. We're in the one that's falling apart. We think that this is the most important thing around. No, this is temporal. It's all going to be gone. The day is coming when it's going to be burnt up. Utterly gone. All the trophies, all the medals, all the, all the pieces of paper and the documents that have praised the flesh and given men swollen heads. It's all going to be gone. And what's coming? The world of glory and infinite majesty of Christ as He dwells and usher in, ushers in eternity. it's not just pie in the sky by and by 
And we're not just kind of, you know, killing time till it gets here. This should be an experience of the world to come. Brethren, pray for the services. Pray for the services. If this all just gets wrapped up with personalities and in our own little fleshly things, we will never know the presence of God as we ought. Never. But when we come, and there are those mornings, and, and there have been many, I thank the Lord for them, many when I can look out and I see people singing, and if I can say it this way without sounding ir- irreverent, I see some people singing with a holy abandon. They're not worried about the people in front of them or behind them or on the side of them. They're singing to the Christ who saved them. And their hearts are filled with joy overflowing. You see it in their countenances. And you begin to see the glory of God's people. Brethren, if we come praying and crying out for His presence, we will know Him here, and at least in what ways we can, until He comes and ushers in the consummated glories of His kingdom in its, in its finality. But we ought to be tasting that right now. It ought to be heard in His preaching. It doesn't matter whether the fellow stands here, whispers or bellows or gets all sweaty or, or is nice and calm and laid back. The issue is, is God's hand upon His preaching. If that's the case, we're hearing what we need to hear. He may be ugly, he may be uh, thin, tall, short, squatty, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not the vessel, it's not the package. He may be eloquent, he may be very rough, he may be very smooth in his language, he may be somewhat coarse. I've heard some preachers that butcher the, the, the language, that uh, our grammar so badly sometimes it's just, it just makes you wince, and yet... They had a hold on Christ and His gospel. Because Christ had a hold of them. And He could take those weak vessels and stir the hearts of God's people. Brethren, that's, that is the power of the world to come. This is why lost, dead sinners are resurrected to life in Christ. When the Word of God goes forth by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses, are raised to life to see their wickedness and to believe on the Lord Jesus. Brethren, that is the power of the world to come. What else would get a hold of a sick, diseased, dead, cancerous soul? that loves its idols and loves its perversion, loves all of its wickedness, and then make him beat his breast and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brethren, that is the power of the world to come. Do you know anything of it? I'm not asking you if you've got a neat, nice, tidy package of all your systematic doctrine put together. Has the power of God ever moved your soul to faith in Christ and to a holy life? If you can say yes, you can not only say amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you have experienced the powers of the world to come. But brethren, the lost can sit and feel those things. They can be shaken. They can hear. They can tremble. 
and walk away lost. He says, the Bible teach that anywhere? Well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? And in Thy name cast out devils? And in Thy name done many wonderful works? These were people that, these are not professing to be Muslims or professing to be Buddhists. They're professing to be Christians and they're doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says, no, you didn't do any miracles. No. He just says, I never knew you. Brethren, not only can people experience the powers of the world to come, if God's so pleased to use them, He can use them to do miraculous things. Because it's not about their glory, it's about His And he shows that he can use the vilest vessels of dust to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need Christians. He loves them and wants them. But he can use anybody that he wants. As scripture plainly attests. Brethren, Matthew chapter 10 tells us in verse 5 that these twelve Jesus sent forth And commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Who was in that number? Judas. The very one into whom later Satan himself entered. It isn't as if Judas went along and the other eleven would say, Out! In the name of the Lord Jesus. And the demons would come out and Judas would say, Out! Doesn't work for me. How come it works for you guys? It doesn't work for me. No, he was right there with them, brethren. You can experience the powers of the world to come without a new heart. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. Having looked at these things, let's close with these few thoughts. Now, admittedly, This is the most difficult of all the things that are said. Because it says renew them again unto repentance. Now that would seem to give a basis for saying, well, they've repented. And uh, so if they've repented, they must be believers. They're being renewed again. And yet, brethren, the Scriptures once again teach us that men can experience a fleshly repentance. Did not Judas himself Matthew 27, verse 3 says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. See, the word repent, very often we charge words with theology that's not there. The word means a change of mind. And it also means feeling remorse and regret. 
What happened to Judas? Wait a minute. I was with him. I saw all the things he did. I've done something wrong. Wait, here's your money back. He changed his mind. He felt remorse. He went out and hung himself. But brethren, it wasn't repentance unto life. False teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than in the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, brethren, this very passage is the commentary on all that we've been saying tonight. They knew the way of righteousness. Then after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. In other words, that dog is still a dog, and that sow is still a sow. And these false teachers are still unregenerate. They heard the word. They were among the Lord's people. And for a time, by their associating with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, having professed faith in Him, uh, and having done all of the things that are commanded by the Lord as far as joining Himself to a, a local assembly and walking with them, they went back. They went back. Why? Well, brethren, Second Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You can come and hear the powerful preaching of the Word of God powerful by the, the Holy Spirit and be touched and pricked and you can grieve and say I've done wrong things and I'll join myself to the Lord's people and yet go back to your vomit and that is because saving faith and the repentance that accompanies it spring forth from the power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. And that continues in the life of God's children. They don't just repent, they're always repenting. They didn't just believe, they're always believing. And the character of their lives is the manifestation of the power of God's Spirit. So brethren, if they shall fall away is a very real warning that we need to hear. We can't get away with just cheap talk and experiences among the Lord's people. These truths draw us before our God and they should cast us in one direction. Not into despair, but onto Christ and His grace. That we will not be trusting in ourselves or in our experiences or any of the things around us, but that we will trust and believe
our God. Saving faith being manifested by a life that continues in the Word of God. Then are ye my disciples indeed. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.